the cycling podcast powered by super sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches hello my name is richard moore i'm with lionel bernie hello richard and daniel freeb hello lionel richie hello chaps hello very good uh very good, Daniel. Um, that one is back. It's back. Um, I remember that joke being cracked on the South Bank in London about six or seven years ago. So it's great to hear that again. Nostalgia. Uh, lots more racing again this week, chaps. Highlight for me, perhaps, uh, Anthony Turgis winning the uh, the Dutch Headwind Championships in Saudi Arabia. I don't know if you saw that at the weekend, but the Dutch Headwind Championships were on actually in Holland. But um, Anthony Turgis did a Paid a, paid a sort of and tribute looking, to that by absolutely a strong we, we, We've already had too much kit chat this year, but he was looking like a, a lemon mer- meringue pie or a flying lemon meringue pie. Absolutely shocking. Wouldn't last long in a headwind, would it? Lemon meringue oh. pie. <laughs> yellow, yellow socks with the white wolf. Yeah, not good. Well, I mean, as you, criminally underrated, isn't he? Maybe he's just wanting to, well, he's not flying below the radar very successfully by... Uh, attacking like that and Ted when it was uh, it was spe- non-spectacular watching that but there has been some great racing over the last uh, week um, and we're going to be talking about that in this week's episode we're also going to be hearing from at least one rider who um, has caught our eye in the last week what do we have coming up Daniel well you've just said what we've got no, coming I just up. hinted you at just, it I hinted you just enumerated it. exactly I was what being we've got enigmatic coming up well, Richard, we're going to talk about the Volta, I'm not going to give it its full name, just call it the Volta Valenciana, um, the Saudi Tour, the Etoile de Bessege, those races that you mentioned there, the first sort of round of stage racing um, across Europe and beyond. And we are going to be discussing some of the rev- revelations of a couple of those races. And then in the final part today, we're going to be looking ahead um with the peloton some of the peloton staying in the arabian peninsula arabian gulf is a man in the arabian gulf not quite i don't think anyway we're going to be talking about the tour of oman a big name rider making his return to action in oman and we'll be hearing from his coach we will indeed it's a topsy-turvy world so far with lotus sudal winning left right and center and riders moving to kofidis and getting better which is reverses a trend of recent years. Uh, but you've got a news roundup for us, please, Lionel. Yeah, well, I'll stick to the headlines because we're going to s- discuss the racing, aren't we, in this week's episode. But as you say, Daniel, the Volta Valenciana concluded and there was plenty of grumbling from Remco about gravel in Spain. Uh, Remco Evenepoel lost the leader's jersey to Alexander about gravel grouchy about gravel grumbling about gravel griping about gravel yes grousing even yeah yeah um i mean he's a young rider so presumably he's right on the vanguard of the you know the gravel revolution surely young people love gravel more than us oldies i don't know maybe that's uh that's a stereotype i don't know but anyway he lost the leader's jersey to alexander vlasov of bora hansgrohe who sealed his first gc win as a professional uh, bad news for Jumbo Visma, Bike Exchange and DSM, whose riders all pulled out of the race because of COVID cases. Movistar did also have another couple of COVID cases, 
those riders left the race, uh, but the team carried on. Fabio Jakobsen and Dylan Groenewegen, people will remember, were both involved in that terrible finish line crash at the Tour of Poland in 2020. And coincidentally, they won on the same day last week taking stage wins in Valencia and Saudi Arabia, respectively, and ending the week with two wins each. In the desert, Maxim van Hils of Lotto Sudal gave the Belgian team a really important overall victory after winning a spectacular uphill finish um, over in France. Benjamin Thomas was the star of Bessage for Cofidis, as you say, Richard. Uh, there was a women's race in Valencia, which was won by Marta Bastianelli for the new UAE team. And uh, off the bike, Giro champion Egan Bernal is out of hospital. The extent of his injuries has emerged uh, with, well, he said on social media that he had broken, at my count, 18 bones in that terrible crash where he hit a bus while training on his time trial bike in Colombia. 11 ribs, his femur, kneecap and two vertebrae in his uh, spine. Um, Tadej Pogacar has had covid but after isolating, he is still on track to start his season at the UAE Tour. That starts on February the 20th. And as you say, Daniel, the racing carries on. Uh, Tour of Oman is starting on Thursday. I'll spoil it by saying that Mark Cavendish is the big name sprinter who is lining up there, as are Arno de Mar and Fernando Gaviria. The Tour de la Provence is also kicking off on Thursday. Naira Quintana. Uh, Richard Carapaz and the world champion Julian Alaphilippe are set to ride there. But Casper Askreen of Quickstep is already out of that one. He has got COVID-19. And there's also racing in Spain with the Vuelta Murcia and the Clásica Almeria. And a new Spanish one-day race which features more gravel. So presumably Remco Evenepoel is giving that a wide berth. Uh, six World Tour teams will ride the Clásica Hayen Paraiso Interior, which is going to feature seven gravel segments and more than 3,000 metres of climbing. And Alejandra Valverde, Tim Wellens, Miguel Angel Lopez and Alexi Lutsenko, who won the Serenissima in Italy, didn't he, last year that you were at, Richard? Um, they're all going to be tackling the gravel. It will, it will also, chaps, feature a lot of olive trees. I'm guessing. We discussed the length and the wealth of last year, didn't we? That was a subject of some debate between um, well, between Joe Dombrowski and myself. What percentage of the world's olive trees were accounted for by the province of Hayen? I think it was between 20 and 25%. That's right. Or, or perhaps the, the output of olive oil, not the percentage of trees, but um, the percentage of the world's Come olive Come on, oil let's, get right. let's get this right. Let's get this right. Well, anyway, well, there'll be plenty of olive oil uh, chat next week when we uh, when we discuss that one and before we know it we'll be into the Ruta del Sol and the tour of the Algarve next week and then it will be Omloop Het Newsblad only a couple of weeks away now a bit more than a couple of weeks away but uh, that's the real start of the season for me as everyone will know over 60 million trees 20% of the world's olive oil supposedly any other news catch your eyes other than olive oil news I mean, disappointing not to have any uh, any segments this week on team team raps or um, or, or mastermind contestants. Just but a postscript on that is that we made contact with uh, the 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 second podcast friend of the podcast, Marty McCann, who took part in mastermind. Actually, won the the round to progress to the semi final, and he will feature in a future episode of the cycling podcast. It was great to make contact with him. 
I saw some hand wringing yesterday online about Chris Froome's new clothing line. He's teamed up with a Miami-based designer to um, produce a line of hoodies and t-shirts. Um, yeah, people got in quite a froth about that, having three weeks ago or two weeks ago completely ignored and not mentioned, not commented on the atrocity. I'm, I'm sorry, Chris, the atrocity that was Chris Froome's golf swing. <laughs> he posted a video of Israel Stardom Nation. On a, on a brighter note, though, James Pickley was quite impressive on the range. Um, the 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 World Tour Peloton's answer to Phil Mickelson, a lovely, um, well, left-hander he is, and a lovely smooth swing. Very impressive. Speaking of clothing ranges, though, Jan Tratnik uh, put in a bid, I thought, uh, last week for the, 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 what are you calling it, the Rolling Cassoulet Award. Unfortunately, oh, well, yeah, didn't think... quite didn't quite work out for him, but... Uh, I thought he was going to be claiming that from Brandon McNulty in the down there in performance of the year, the, the the rolling performance of the year. Yeah, I, I, we haven't quite set out the parameters of this, but do you have to win the race in order to claim? Well, that's the a prize? good question. I, it's a, we'll have to weigh that up as the performances come along. I have to say, it wasn't anything that particularly caught my eye. Can you produce week, a great was... performance without winning? Yes. Give but me can an you win the Cassoulet Prize without winning? I, I At the end of this episode, I want examples from each of you, and I'll try and come up with one myself as well, of a great performance where the rider didn't win. Okay? There's a challenge. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. Thank you very much indeed to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. Very grateful to them for their support across all the cycling podcast shows. And some Super Sapiens news. They've partnered with UCI pro team Eolo Cometa, the Italian squad that's run by Ivan Basso and Alberto Contador. Who could forget lucky Lorenzo Fortunato's stage win on Montes Oncalan at last year's Giro? Well, this year the team's riders will be working closely with Super Sapiens using Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor and the new energy band. Fran Contador, who's Alberto's brother and runs the team, described Super Sapiens as an important partner and said... They will help us better oversee the fueling and nutrition of our riders, which we believe will directly improve performance. Well, chaps, we um, we went quite big last week, didn't we, on Remco Evenepoel's very eye-catching performance uh, on stage one down there in Valenciana. It looked very good indeed, but um, faded a little bit over the course of the week as Alexander Vlasov uh, took his first stage w- race win for Bora Hansgrohe, um, a really important uh Win for them. We heard from Rolf Aldag a couple of weeks ago about how that team has really uh, changed its focus this year to stage races, and that's a that's a pretty perfect start for them with with this new focus and with one of their new riders, Vlasov. But um, you mentioned uh, Lionel the uh, Evnipol complaining about the gravel. He is taking on some um, personality traits of his boss, Patrick Lefebvre, I think. You know, he Lefebvre would have been remember Lefebvre a couple of years ago complaining about the 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 dirt roads in Paris Tour. Um he he's a real traditionalist sometimes, Lefebvre, very conservative sometimes. And uh even the pole for such a young rider, um he's he's pretty outspoken on some of some of these things. And it doesn't I don't think it always does him 
many favors? I think, chaps, you, this is mitigated. We should caveat this by saying that there were, to my knowledge, there were at least four correspondents from Belgian newspapers at the Volta Valenciana, which would not ordinarily happen. Um, it's a pretty small race, and I don't imagine there were any other foreign journalists there. So there is always will, there is always someone willing to shove a microphone under Remco's nose and solicit his opinions about anything and everything. And I suspect if you did the same to the majority of riders in the peloton, I mean, some of them would still say absolutely nothing that was quote worthy, but a lot would. And I think that's what's happening here mainly. Yeah, I mean, he did reference the gravel section, as we heard in last week's podcast, when Quickstep had a, a little media thing uh, the day before the race. And he made the point that when they went on their recon, they didn't even go any further because they assumed that the GPX file that they were following was in some way um, inaccurate. The, the inference being that they couldn't believe the race was going to take on this gravelly, rocky section. And he did quip that it was a it would be a beautiful stage for mountain bikes. And I think there's a little glint in the eye when he says these things. I mean, at the end of the day, he's come undone on a, a steep, difficult finish. Um, but, I mean, it was still a, a good week for Evna Paul. I mean, the, the manner in which he won the stage he won was really impressive, as we said last week and the couple of big big turns to lead out Fabio Jakobsen set up Fabio Jakobsen as part of a very impressive quick step team um, for the sprints I mean they did everything they controlled all day um, they led it out Evnepol did some huge turns on those run-ins uh, stage four which was eventually won by Moschetti of Trek Segafredo and stage five which Jakobsen won that was his second stage win of the race so I mean it I think there's a, a little pinch of salt to take from those quotes. I'm with you there, Daniel. But um, on the flip side of that, it's up to the race organisers to make a compelling event. And that stage with the gravel was a really good watch. So, you know, the organisers are going to find these roads and they're going to make these stages and the riders are going to have to do them. And the bike manufacturers want the um, want to showcase the, the, the gravel bikes that they've got. And I think, you know, there's a bigger um, ecosystem at play than just whether or not individual riders think they should or shouldn't have to um, ride these sort of stages or these sorts of sections. It, it was pretty extreme and, and pretty hard. That's one of the one of the most compelling aspects of sections like this. So in a way, it reminded me of the the new Super La Planche de Belfi finish that that goes onto the 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 dirt roads and just seems to carry on forever. You see the riders in those situations working in a way that you don't often see them working and suffering. And, you know, riders can lose a lot of time in a very short distance, as as happened with Avon the Pool. It is spectacular. And I think that if you're going to include sections as extreme as that in any race, then then I think it's fine to include them in a race like Valenciana, where there's not as much at stake as there is in some other races. It's, it's definitely the way the the sport is going and even the poll i mean i was surprised to see him uh come unstuck there in the way that he did but it was really hard he wasn't the only rider to suffer um i guess as you say lionel the other story from that race was the the quick step sprinting machine they, they've actually just released a video today showing uh showing some of their work um on sprints we're going to hear as you said earlier down from uh, cavendish's coach he also coaches fabio jacobson doesn't he a bit later on um, but they're 
their sprint leadouts were firing very well. And we've got the intriguing prospect of, as I think I mentioned a while ago, Grunewagen and, and Jakobsen establishing themselves as the two best sprinters in the world. And you've made the point before, Daniel, that prior to their terrible crash in Poland, that was the trajectory they were both kind of on. And it, it was, for both riders, it was it was kind of um, held up and potentially stopped after that crash. You know, they both suffered injuries. Jakobsen's obviously far worse, but I think for Grunewagen, there was the the... Yeah, the 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 the, tra- the trauma also of having been involved in the crash, broken collarbone, and a suspension that he had to deal with. But we said that his move to Team Bike Exchange was a masterstroke for Bike Exchange. I think already it looks as if that may well be the case. It's given them a focal point that they've that they've certainly lacked. Yeah, I think we saw at the Vuelta, didn't we, last year? They were really sort of struggling for um, or to give their race a, a kind of. Uh, raison d'etre and they were sometimes working for Michael Matthews as though Matthews was a frontline sprinter which he's, he's not necessarily these days he's more versatile than that and a different kind of rider but I expect uh, Groenewegen to have a, a really good season and it will be interesting when they come up against each other just with Jakobsen as well um, you know we think that he well Patrick Lefebvre has pretty much said that he's, he's the sort of first choice the frontline sprinter the guy who's earmarked for the Tour de France but it's going to be it just struck me watching him win there and watching the sort of celebrations afterwards. It's going to be a different emotional sort of experience for that team and that sort of sprint train. It's going to be, you know, Cavendish brings a certain aura and a certain energy to proceedings, which is different from what Jakobsen does. And, you know, that those sort of fire and ice work perfectly with Morku because we know that he's um, a very calm character and it's just going to be interesting to see that how that works and and um and, and how Cavendish goes which we'll talk about later the, the another thing that caught my eye chaps while we should talk about Vlasov really as well in the in light of you know what we heard a few weeks ago about Bora Hansgrohe's focus on stage races this year and um, well, Vlasov is their guy for the Tour de France, but he was very, very impressive. And on that gravel, particularly Rich, he was extremely impressive. Um, and also uh, Carlos Rodriguez um, of Ineos, you know, has been um, obviously a lot of concern about Egan Bernal, um, the Ineos, the, their main GC guy over the last couple of weeks. But Rodriguez is someone who's not really, um, he's not really attracted the same attention as some other young riders over the past two or three years, mainly because he's, He's been building pretty slowly and being nurtured pretty slowly. And even, you know, we've been talking about Juan Ayuso in the last couple of weeks. Um, this other very young Spanish sort of phenom at UAE. I thought he might even um, sort of blow everyone's doors off at uh, the Volta Valenciana. But uh, it was Rodriguez who was the more impressive. And um, yeah, those two have had a rivalry going back years to their junior days. And both, you know, very good climbers, um, time trialists. Ayuso's a little bit quicker, but it's going to be really interesting to see what Ineos do with him over the next few months. Yeah, Rodriguez is an interesting one. I think he's also flown below the radar, weirdly, being on that team, um, Ineos, because there are so many riders that sort of soak up all the attention uh, that he's been allowed to develop quite quietly, but some very encouraging results for him, second at the Tour de l'Avenir last year as well. Um, You know, could he emerge as somebody who, because we hear reports that the the, the programme, certainly Matteo Tosato, the sports director at Ineos, has suggested that 
um, th th they're not going to tinker with their planned lineups for the Grand Tours this year, that Carapaz, we assumed in Bernal's absence, Carapaz would go to the, the Tour de France instead of the Giro. But according to Tosato, the plan is at the moment still for Carapaz to lead the team into the Giro, which potentially with Richie Porte, Theo Gegenhart and Carapaz all going to the Giro could leave them a bit light at the at the Tour. Um, Geraint Thomas obviously will, will be planning to go there, but could a rider like Carlos Rodriguez, could this be an opportunity for him to step up and uh, be a, I don't know, a protected rider or certainly a, an interesting option for them at the at the Tour de France? I think he's being sort of groomed for the Vuelta um, at the moment. He, they had in mind to put him in the Vuelta. I mean, the, the issue, there is going to be an issue throughout this season, as we thought there would be last year, or we're certainly going to talk about it, I'm sure, um, the, the balance that Ineos have to strike between giving opportunities and keeping people happy, even with Bernal, you know, um, out of the equation, certainly for the first half of the year, you know, you've got guys like Sivakov and Teo Gegenhart who are at key, you would think they're at key, a key stage now in, they're at a bit of a fork in the road in terms of um, whether they are going to be GC leaders on that team. And the, I, I guess there'll be some quite difficult decisions um, that the team has to make at certain points this year with Adam Yates as well. Just on Vlasov, because uh, that was his first GC victory as a pro rider. And it feels like quite a long time in the making that victory. Um, think back to his Gazprom days when he first caught the eye and then a few years with Astana. And obviously some really high profile results in both stage races and one day races. Obviously the biggest results he's had so far, fourth in last year's Giro d'Italia and second in Paris-Nice last year but that was his first victory and I wonder if that's sort of broken the seal for him get him over the line and, and actually win a stage race it could be the first of um, a handful this season you get the feeling that he is um, you know moving up a level this year the other things that caught my eye well certainly it certainly capped it just it capped a fantastic week for Vlasov because not only did he win his first stage race for his new team but he will also have realized that by leaving Astana when he did, he avoided being part of the Astana <laughs> rap. Uh, so a great a great week for Vlasov. Well, certainly. and he avoided being sent up the road in the final day punishment break as uh, Manuele Boaro and Vincenzo Nibali did. I was surprised to see them up the road in a four-man break. It was a pretty powerful break, wasn't it? But um, I wondered what uh, Nibali was, was actually doing there. Just, I guess, training, really. Um, looking forward to bigger objectives later on and having a, a tougher day out than he would ordinarily have done just uh, sort of rolling along in in the bunch um but it was a good race wasn't it and i enjoyed the gravel section and i think um you know i'm not gonna not gonna side with riders grumbling it's a bit like uh it's a bit like golfers i suppose complaining that about the wind or the the pin positions or the the you know the length of the holes or whatever it is golfers complain about um, you know, I don't know what else do they complain about. Daniel taxes, I suppose, most of them. <laughs> the, 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 the quality. I think they, they must complain about the clothes they have to wear, don't they? <laughs> oh, they they certainly should. Yeah, yeah. Maybe about people like Chris Froome debasing their sport <laughs> by posting clips on social media. Absolute eyesores. I mean, you're being harsh there, but I want to see Phil Mickelson riding Alpduez now. I think it's only fair. <laughs> Talking of courses, chaps, um, I guess it's time to move on to the Saudi tour. And before we say anything about the racing, um, 
we were pretty well we sort of raised a collective eyebrow last week at you know the whole notion of a race taking place in Saudi Arabia and we talked about the efforts that that country is going to to promote itself through sport but if we're to take politics out of the equation for a minute I must say that I found it one of the well probably the most visually appealing interesting races we've seen in that part of the world in the gulf of the the various races that have come and gone and stayed um over the years including oman and qatar and uae dubai tour and so forth um there were a couple of stages which were a real feast for the eyes and i suppose you know if if one was to imagine a sort of global global sport professional cycling and what it it should be doing again taking politics um, out of our thoughts and considerations um, you know showcasing showcasing as many sort of different landscapes and and different parts of the world as possible in the manner that the Saudi tour did very successfully um, would be part of that brief I, th- I would I would suggest I agree yeah it looks it looks spectacular um, it's very different type of place to Qatar for example where you know, we, we sort of grew to love the racing in Qatar in a, in a weird way with the 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 crosswinds that you often had there. But the the desert there is pretty pretty ugly and pretty featureless, um, and there's a lot of industry. Uh, whereas in Saudi Arabia, certainly the the parts that we were um, taken to through the race, um, there were a lot of very spectacular vistas, and you know the stage um, that where uh, Maxime Van Van Heels really um, laid the the groundwork for his overall win um, when he got away with Andrea Bagioli, dropped him on that climb again. It was it was a really fascinating finish to the race. Um, tough a tough climb and uh, a really uh, yeah an enjoyable race to watch from the, the comfort of your home. Yeah, certainly potential from the visual point of view and the potential for crosswinds as well and uh, a, a good workout for the sprinters. And we're in that phase of the season, aren't we, very early days where all the sprinters seem to be dotted around in different places. So they all look sort of equally impressive. But uh, I did think Dylan Groenewegen, has, um, well, he's he's got off to a great start with uh, his new team, Bike Exchange, hasn't he? Um, two stage wins there. And Caleb Ewan, unfortunate on the final day to have a an ill-timed puncture as the race was really hotting up towards the end, but will no doubt take heart from the fact that he won uh, the, the difficult finish on the opening day. Um, but overall, it was a, a very competitive week's racing. And I thought the uphill finish where Bagioli and Van Hills went clear together and... Uh, uh, Van Hills attacked and, and got away and won the stage and, and that was the performance that set up his overall victory. I mean, that was spectacular, dramatic and an, a, a very exciting uh, culmination to the second of the, the difficult finishes. Well, the other race that was going on last week down in the south of France, a race that is, uh, we're more familiar with, it's been around forever, Etoile de Bessege, um, and it represented a, a triumph for Cofidis uh, with a couple of stage wins, for new riders for them, kind of old names to us, uh, Benjamin Thomas has joined from Groupama FTG and Brian Cocard, Le Coq, as he's known on French TV, joining from uh, B&B Hotels. After a few pretty disappointing years for Brian Cocard, there was, was a time when he was a great kind of hope of French cycling and sprinting. Uh, both 
very accomplished track riders, Thomas and uh, Cockar. And Cockar won a, a difficult stage um, up against Mads Pedersen on an uphill finish, a really hard stage. And Thomas took the overall, um, taking a stage win and then holding on in the time trial. He's the French national time trial champion. Um, so a real turn up for the books and a really important win that for Cofidis. The Uno X team were very impressive. They've been very public about wanting a wild card for the Tour de France. Will they have um, furthered their cause or is it really too late? Has that already been decided? We're not sure. Um, they were also pretty prominent in Saudi Arabia as well, weren't they? They've been uh, they've been very visible already this year. Um, but Etoile de Bessege did throw up a few a few surprises. One non-surprise was Filippo Ghana winning the time trial at the end. Um, but it was a, an entertaining race. And Lionel, you spoke to um, a young Norwegian who certainly caught her eye there. Yeah, um, it was stage four that uh, Tobias Halland Johansson won to Mon Bouquet, which is just uh, where Ben O'Connor won a stage of the same race a couple of years ago. And, well, the, the name uh, Johansson may well have lodged in people's minds because he won the Tour de l'Avenir last year for the Norwegian national team. And it just made me think that the Tour de l'Avenir has become a really key indicator of future success, certainly in terms of the roll call of winners in recent years. Uh, in 2019, Tobias Foss won. Before that, Tadej Pogacar, Egan Bernal, David Godou, Marc Soler, Miguel Angel Lopez, Ruben Fernandez, Warren Barguil, Esther Chavez, Naira Quintana. I mean, there is not a rider there who hasn't gone on to make a pretty impressive uh, professional career for themselves. Uh, Grand Tour champions in there as well. Um, Johannesson also had a very good ride at the Giro, uh, well, as we call it, the Baby Giro, the Giro d'Italia for under-23 riders, where he finished second to Juan Ayuso. And I suppose just continuing the theme of young riders, because I've been a bit sniffy in the past, haven't I, about uh, young riders. They're like buses. There'll be another one along soon enough. But uh, we're certainly in the era of the young phenomenon, I think, aren't we? Not just seeing the way that the likes of Pogacar and co have adapted to the pro ranks uh, so quickly. But even when you look at the Baby Giro recent winners, uh, 2020 Tom Pidcock, 2018 Alexander Vlasov, 2017 Pavel Sivakov, these races are now really throwing up the, the stars of the future in you know very short order, aren't they? Um, so I thought I'd speak to Johannesson. I got him on the phone after he had travelled back to his home near Oslo in Norway after winning a stage at the Etoile de Bessage and finishing third overall. The first uh, two stages was, uh, or three stages, was really good for our team. But we didn't like uh, completely make it uh, with our tactics. Uh, so for the fourth stage, which suited me quite well, we went uh, all in from the start. And uh, yeah, in, in the finishing climb, I knew that uh, I could win the stage. So... From the bottom, like uh, all I could think about was uh, going to to finish off with a win. So, yeah, the the pace was quite hard from the start, and uh, Jay Wine from Alpecin Phoenix uh, made an attack like halfway up the climb, and then I decided to just follow and try to work with him and. I know that uh, after a hard climb, I, st I can still sprint quite well. So my tactic was just to, to try to hold the wheels and then try to take it in the end. And 
Yeah, uh, I got uh, got some legs to to finish it off with a sprint. So I was like really happy to to give back to the team after a a brilliant week of uh, teamwork. So yeah, that was that was fun. I mean, it was third time lucky, I guess, but the two previous days, you were in the break with a former world champion, Mads Pedersen, and you were in the finish with a former Tour of Flanders winner, Alberto Bettiol. I mean, quite an interesting way to begin your career as a, a, a professional in the pro ranks. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, quite unexpected, but uh, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, X, we always like to try to, to make the race and yeah, that that was no different from from any other race. So we just went uh, all in. And then the, the race finished off with a, a time trial. Now I did read something that said it was only the third time trial you've ever done, but that can't be right, surely. Uh yeah, I think that's uh, right. Uh, um, I, my twin brother and I have been mountain bikers until twenty twenty. So. There has been uh, zero focus on uh, uh, aero gains and stuff like that, but uh, we we had one prologue in Tour de l'Avenir, and uh, I also did one time trial in the the under twenty three Giro. So that was my third race on a time tra- time trial bike. So, but I think it's it's a fun way of uh, racing. Wow, I mean, a good performance because you held on to a place on the podium by just a couple of seconds. <laughs> yeah, that was quite uh, close, but uh, yeah, I'm really happy that it was uh, a couple of seconds in my favor. So yeah, that was that was a nice bonus for the week. You mentioned your twin brother there, um, Anders, I think is his name. Is that correct? Um, but who uh, who yep. who got into cycling first, and how did you get interested in cycling? Uh, I think uh, yeah, growing up in a small town here in Drebak, we always uh, have had to use our bikes to get to school and stuff like that. So it was just like a natural thing. And when we are twins, we always like to compete. So um, like when we were riding back home from school, it was always uh, a sprint into the <laughs> into the gate of the house. So it was just a natural thing for us to to start to race bikes. And who was the best at sprinting back to the house? Who won the most sprints? I think we're quite like 50-50 on that one. And we're still counting. So every training ride is the same. <laughs> still a sprint. Well, you've, cert- you've certainly got off to a good start this year. He's got some catching up to do. Um, what about uh, cycling in Norway? Because you would have been growing up in in the era of uh, maybe you're a little young for, to remember Tour Hushov in, in his greatest days, but certainly Alexander Kristoff, Edvald Bosenhagen. I mean, what do, what do these figures mean uh, for a young person growing up in Norway getting into cycling? I think it means a lot because uh, we're quite small in like the cycling world, but there has almost uh, every year there has been some top results from Norwegian cyclists. So, uh, yeah, we have always seen that it's been a possible uh, possibility to ride bikes as a pro, and uh, I think the the UNOX program now is also there's a lot of guys there that has been uh, looking up to Torhusov and Edvard Bosenhagen and Alexander Kristoff. So now we're trying to to be the next ones. <laughs> I mean, what's it like being on a team which is predominantly Norwegian riders? I mean, after the results you had last year, there must have been some other interest in you. So was that the case? And, and what made you choose Uno X? 
I think uh, just the, the, I feel like it's a really safe env- environment and both uh, my twin brother and me are still quite new. So there's a lot to learn. And uh, also we have had our coach for, I think, four years now who has been working with the Unix system for a long time. So it's, yeah, it feels like home. And I think we're also like developing in the same um, pace. So Unix wants to be World Tour and we want to be World Tour riders one day. And I think yeah, that dream can come true together. So uh, yeah, to be a part of a, a team like this from Norway is like, it's never happened before. So uh, yeah, we just feel lucky to be in this team. Uh, just uh, about the, the baby Giro, uh, the under 23 Giro last year, because you were second on the podium behind uh, Juan Ayuso, who a lot of people are quite excited about um, a very good uh, climber. I mean, what was that race like for you? And uh, what, you know, what did you learn from that kind of result? I think, yeah, that that was a really fun race. I really enjoyed racing in Italy as well. So it was my first uh, like real stage race. So I learned uh, uh, like the structure of how you could perform in a stage race and how important fueling and everything is. So I, I brought a lot of that uh, into Tour de l'Avenir uh, later in the season. So yeah, that was a nice race. Yeah, tell me about the Tour de l'Avenir because you, you went up against uh, uh, the Italian rider Filippo Zana, didn't you? Again, um, you basically won the, the two toughest stages right at the end of the race. Yeah, it was. Uh, that was also a really nice uh, experience. And I had a really good team around me and... We had some good results in in the start with Søren uh, Værenskål uh, doing some sprints and TTs and yeah, it was just like ten days of pure fun racing. So uh, and we had had a little scare in the in the end with uh, Carlos Rodriguez almost uh, taking the win, but uh, yeah, in the end uh, our team saved it. So yeah, that was probably one of my best memories uh, from last year. So. I mean, just judging from the results there, winning on the Grand Colombier, um, a race that went deep into the into the French Alps. You're obviously a climber. That's that's the type of rider you are. Uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy riding uphill, but uh, I think I think it's still early to see. I, I think I will always be a climber, but uh, uh, I also like like punchy stages with uh, that ends up in a reduced uh, bunch sprint. So. I'm still trying to figure out what type of rider I want to be, but uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's nice with cycling. There's a lot of different races and different ways of winning. So yeah, that's something I will learn more about in the future, I think. And lastly, I mean, your team must have been delighted with the, the stage win and the place on the podium. Uh, has that changed the way that you will approach the, the coming races? Are you going to change your race program? And, and tell me what your uh, next appearances will be. I think uh, it doesn't change much. And that's because, like uh, like I said before, Unix always wants to ride aggressively and, and, uh, and animate the races. So we're going to do the same thing throughout the year. So uh, I think now for me, it's, I want to learn a bit more about uh, every uh, aspect of cycling. So I think the next for me will be uh, the opening weekend in Belgium and try some uh, cobbled, uh, cobbled races and that part of cycling as well. 
And just very lastly, I mean, Carlos Rodriguez had a really good week in Valencia. I mean, you probably wouldn't have seen too much of that. You're a little bit busy yourself racing. Um, But I mean, it must give you tremendous confidence to know that, you know, last year you were going head to head with him and, you know, he's gone into another pro race um, with a very strong field and and he's slotted right in. So it must give you confidence of, of where your level is going to be. Yeah, for sure. It's it's cool to see the guys that uh, I've been racing in the U23s with do uh, perform good in elite races. And yeah, I think uh, that's uh, that's a bit of the part uh, of of the change in cycling that it's it's possible to do good results earlier in the career. So yeah, I think it's gonna be a be an, an exciting season with a, a lot of new guys uh, trying to win races. And yeah, I think it's gonna be fun. Well, Lionel, he um, sounds like a, a great talker as well as a, obviously a great bike rider. It showed the kind of great race craft, canniness or shrewdness in, in a situation with uh, Alberto Bettiel, or perhaps it was a bit self-defeating because Benjamin Thomas was up the road. Uh, he was behind with Bet- with Bettiel. Um, had they both cooperated in chase, maybe they would have caught him, but he sat on Bettiel for a bit and then and then jumped him and that kind of ruined the move and I, but i just I th- thought it was surprisingly a bold move by such a young rider against such an established rider i thought he did very well in asking him about norwegian cycling influences not to mention dag otto lauritsen that showed good awareness of just how young he actually is well done <laughs> dag otto lauritsen well must have retired about seven years before he was born <laughs> dag, dag otto lauritsen was already probably around about 55 he's also he now yeah, dag so is also good. now one of the most famous tv personalities in norway so we definitely know who dag well, is dag has his own sort of challenge if you remember annika rice challenge annika on um uk television i mean they, dag. Don't, they don't look dissimilar well he drives around fronts. famously at the tour in the the dag automobile doesn't he a, a branded car with his huge face on the on the side i don't mean he's got a huge face i mean it's just a huge depiction of his face yeah it's a big brown face i mean he's perma tanned <laughs> looks about 35 still looks fantastic anyway he's um, fantastic he's fantastic uh, he is, he's a very I, friendly I see him and socialize well. with him on tour every year and um yeah he's a, a, a fine gentleman Tobias, so one of identical twins, um, both of whom seem to be very talented, um, but Tobias certainly is a bit ahead in terms of results at the moment. And yeah, looks a great prospect. Well, just on the Norwegians and the influences, chaps, we touched on it there. And, you know, it's a country that's that's building quite a heritage now. And while well, we see also the presence of the Norwegian fans, or we certainly did before covid at the side of the road and they're one of the the countries that's sort of most strongly represented in terms of support um but until now as far as riders are concerned it's it's been quite one-dimensional in the sense there's been a, a sort of template of a norwegian rider um hasn't there they've been they've tended to be tall pretty heavy pretty beefy and um, sort of hard roadman sprinters um not pure sprinters but Husovd and Kristoff certainly quite similar and and that has been the identikit of Norwegian rider but um Johansson could could represent sort of coming the emergence of a of a new breed um and Lionel I've been also been talking to Norwegians this week um I spoke to our colleague 
from Norwegian television, TV2, Magnus Order, who covers the Tour de France and lots of other races. And I spoke to him about precisely this, why Norway has thus far not produced climbers, Grand Tour riders, and indeed riders that, um, well, like Johannesson uh, appears to be. <laughs> uh, that's the, the, the million dollar question. Uh, and I think the the consensus on that one is that there are not that many races in the youth categories in Norway. Uh, and the few that are do not include any sort of climbs or mountains. Um, because even though we've got mountains all over the place, a lot of the cycling races are centered in the eastern part of Norway, where it's pretty flat. Okay. Um, and, and the guys we had before, like Knut Knutsen in the 80s and Tor Husov, they've all been like classic okay. classic riders and, uh, and sprinters. So never really been a big emphasis on, on developing climbers, but that's changed now the last five, six years. So um, there's a lot of climbers coming through, actually. Tell me a little bit about this place where he's from, Drobach. Yeah, yeah, he's from uh, Drebok, a small place just outside Oslo. So um, they've been, uh, it's the same place as Kartredik Hagen, basically, just up the road. Uh, Katrina Olleru from Movie Star, just down the road. So it's a lot of riders from that small region. Um, but totally flat, no, no mountains anywhere to be seen. So um, it's all about the physiology for those guys, I think. And you told me that you'd already had, you'd had some contact with these brothers. Yeah, uh, I mean, like for the last 12 months, we've done a few, quite a few pieces on them. Uh, and, and the interesting thing is that obviously they're identical. You can't really tell who's who from pictures. They actually struggle themselves to say, oh, that's me and that's you. <laughs> but, but Tobias actually has like a, a small mole on his left cheek, I think. So you can actually tell, tell from that. Uh, <laughs> but um, they're also, you know, they, they test identical right, in terms of, FTP and uh, VO2 max, they're like identical riders. Um, Tobias has won a lot more races though, um, but I suspect that Anders will get to that level pretty soon as well. Um, so um, very down-to-earth, classic Norwegian uh, guys, I would say. Um, and obviously there was a lot of interest in them from from overseas uh, after the Baby Giro and Lavinia last year. Um, but they renegotiated their deal with Unix and are staying till I think 2024. Yeah. yeah. Mayus, obviously, Tobias Foss had a bit of a breakthrough last year. And then, you know, we've got this sort of exciting development with the what happened at the Etoile de Bessege and the Johannesson brothers. Are there any other names that we should be looking out for as far as Norwegian, young Norwegians are concerned over the next few months? Absolutely. Uh, Andreas Leknesund at DSM. Super talent, super prospect. Had a tough, I don't, I don't know, tough is the right word, but he, he didn't really get his big breakthrough last year, his first year with DSM. Um, he's kind of uh, changed his perspectives a little bit. Like First it was GC-oriented, then it was classic, and now he's back to being like a GC-focused rider. Um, Top prospect, uh, described as the biggest Norwegian cycling talent ever by former national coach Stig Kristiansen. Uh, so he's up there with um, Tobias Foss and Tobias Hallenhannesen. And he's from. And, um, he's from Anders yeah. and he's an interesting story because he's from Tromsø. 
and you know, right in the north. Yeah, we don't have many. <laughs> yeah. We don't have many riders from up north. So uh, he's um, he's uh, he's got a unique story. Someone uh, who so I, hopefully clicks from this year, like someone who I guess has spent a lot of his life on a turbo trainer, or he spent six months of every year on a turbo <laughs> trainer. I would guess. I'm not sure. Like like every like every Norwegian rider. Mm. Uh, so um, yeah, he's had a different uh, upbringing, but um, he's um, super talented uh, guy who might just explode this year or next year. So we got a few GC riders who um, are developing now. So a um, big change from the classic sprinters types of Christoph Bosenhagen who sold um, of. Um, in the past few decades. So Charles, there we have it. It's not just the Johansson twins that we should be looking out for, if we can tell them apart. I mean, extraordinary. They can't even tell themselves apart. Imagine looking at a photo and not being quite sure whether it was you or not. That was just a, a unique experience, isn't it? I wonder if the, I I wonder if the Yates brothers have that. Probably not. Um, uh, well, I mean, we just, we yeah, I mean, we, we obviously just got, got used to Adam being a, a different team to his brother and figured that one out. Now along come the Johansson twins um and uh sounds like they're going to be difficult to separate um it'll be intriguing to see how uh anders gets on when his season starts which i think is later this week and magnus mentioned there uh Lechnesund, uh andres uh Lechnesund, who is probably the well the northernmost in terms of birth uh rider in the pro peloton um hailing from tromso Right, um, which often features, in fact, in the Arctic race of Norway, so above the Arctic uh, which Circle. Which you have, which you have attended. Um, attended, haven't you, Daniel? Yes, the, and the route was announced, I think, last week, and it's going to be the first edition that's going to take place, I think, entirely below the Arctic Circle. So it's a bit of a, a sort of um, violation of the Trade Descriptions Act. Um, but just finally, on the Norwegians, and we mentioned uh, Uno X and their designs on a place at the Tour de France this year. Um, it's a sort of Norwegian Danish team um there's a lot of support among certainly fans of professional cycling for that team and their wild card and ambitions a lot of people think they they would deserve a wild card but I think it's still and they're still an outside bet and B&B the French team that have B&B hotels that that have um got wild cards in the past couple of years um they're still sort of favorites to take what would be the last one when will the announcement be made we're not quite sure although last year it was on the 4th of february that aso announced wildcard entries not only for the tour but paris and the dauphine i spoke to someone at bnb hotels this morning they're not sure either but it could come at any time just finally chaps do you know what uno x do oh the company that's a no. They are all automated, fully automated, I believe, um, petrol stations. Interesting. Um, well, they're a team that has uh, generated a lot of goodwill already, I think. Just that they're, they're a fresh new team. Um, we had Orla's into with Eleanor Barker, and they've got a Women's World Tour team this year. And, of course, they um, in year one, they, um, they proved to be um, excellent employers when Eleanor Barker told them that she was uh, unexpectedly expecting a baby and they're obviously supporting her through that which is fantastic um, and uh, so th there's a lot of goodwill already towards this this team and they've started the season um, racing very impressively and aggressively uh, wherever they've been but you know the fact that 
we're expecting the announcement of wild cards around now, or wouldn't be surprised if it came imminently, suggests that the decision on that will have been made several weeks ago. It won't have been made on the basis of how the, the teams have got on at Etoile de Bessege, you know, and we don't really know, perhaps even less with the Tour than with the Giro, what the criteria are for selection. Um, there, there isn't a great deal of transparency around that process, is there? Well, no, there's no set criteria, is there? It's whether or not the team adds something to the race. And remember, the Grand Depart is in Scandinavia this year. It's in Copenhagen in Denmark. Uno X is a Norwegian team, mostly Norwegian roster, but they do have six Danish riders on the team as well. So that might be enough to persuade ASO to give them an invite, especially when you know there is scope to um, have a few wild cards because there's only 18 World Tour teams, isn't there? The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Thank you very much indeed to Science in Sport for their support of the Cycling Podcast. If you would like 25% off all your Science in Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and at the checkout enter the discount code SISCP25. If you take advantage of that discount and use that code you are supporting the cycling podcast as well so thank you very much i, I was saved by an energy gel today uh, while on a ride and um, started to get really hungry and it just just got me home so that was good excellent in in other important news rich has the postman delivered to you there in rural northern france Yes, I, I received my MAP consignment. Uh, we are partnering with MAP this year. Um, there's a TCP MAP collaboration coming down the tracks. More details than that soon. But I, I took delivery of their deep winter uh, range jacket tights. You, you described the clothing as like a second skin, Lionel. I would describe the tights as like a first skin. Mm. I mean, the tights are remarkably comfortable and warm uh, and they're they've they've got padding in them so you don't have to wear them with shorts that wrinkle up underneath which is nice so um i've really been enjoying wearing the clothing and it's been very cold so um it's been keeping me nice and nice and warm and it won't be long before we can reveal the extent of our collaboration with map uh some exciting news to announce maybe a little later this month or perhaps early in March. Um, next week, chaps, I'm not around on Tuesday or Wednesday. I'm going on a little solo bike packing trip, um, riding to somewhere and then riding back home again over a couple of days. My final kind of training, just a sort of dry run before the Tour de Cosse a little bit later this spring. And I'll be fueling up with science and sport, of course, and very much looking forward to wearing my MAP deep winter jacket as well, Rich. I'll take some pictures of myself. You're very mysterious. You know, is it? A, I mean, do you know where you're going, or is it just <laughs> going to be? Are you just going to set out right into the wind, like Anthony Turgis, and uh, and then make it a very short ride home the next day? No, I'm, I've, I've got an idea in mind, um, but uh, Southwold can't reveal that. No, I've done that before. Can't reveal oh, done that before, at this yeah. stage. But I'll, I'll mention it next week. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, we look forward to hearing about that. Um, what else have we got this week, fellas? We're looking ahead to the Tour of Oman um, is, is coming up and the first appearance of the season by Mark Cavendish. Um, 
Daniel, what can we expect from Mark Cavendish? Well, it's a good question, Rich. We we haven't heard an awful lot from Mark Cavendish this winter, have we? We've heard a lot from, or well, as always, we heard a fair bit from Patrick Lefebvre, his team manager, about the team's plans. And we referred earlier in the pod, didn't we, to the, well, what's what people imagine to be the pecking order. And Fabio Jakobsen has sort of strongly suggested that he's in line to do the Tour de France as the team's um main sprinter but of course we all remember um that last year mark cavendish wasn't supposed to or it wasn't even um on our radar or anyone else's that he might possibly do the tour de france at this time last year i mean most people um didn't think he would even be competitive um but in february last year and um, he went on to win four stages of the tour de france and actually um, we didn't mention this earlier, but he did you see that he was nominated by um, in the Laureus Sports Awards, which is kind of a uh, an Oscars for sport. And um, he was nominated for the comeback of the year last week. I'm not sure when the award ceremony is. Um, so anyway, Rich, in answer to your question, um, I'm not entirely sure what we should expect from Mark, but I'm certainly curious, Rich. And indeed, earlier today, I spoke to Mark's coach at Quickstep Alpha Vinyl Vasilis Anastopoulos about exactly what we should expect from Mark this week at the Tour of Oman. You know, last year was the first time that we started working together. So it was a bit of, you know, a journey to the unknown, as you can say it. This year, we knew exactly what we had to do. So uh, we already worked a, a whole year together. So I know how uh, how Mark responds to the train load and the uh, you know, to the whole uh, plan that we have. So even though he started a bit later than the other guys and had a really busy program, everything seems to 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 be well. So he did a nice, a short camp in uh, December. Then he did a longer one in uh, January, starting uh, Calp and then going to Algarve. So I think uh, he's he's ready to go. He's ready to go, I think, now. So, last day, Senor Gavri, we did some sprints. And, uh, you know, his power values were close to the ones he had last year at the same time. So, I'm I'm optimistic that he can start well in Oman. Of course, the biggest target is, you know, later on, UAE, Tireno. But uh, I think Oman will be a good start. Because last year, Vasi, it was all, as you say, new. Uh, it was new... Um, for him to be working with you, um, he obviously was was attempting this incredible comeback, and I guess there was, well, I mean, I know from speaking to him, there was a lot of excitement. He couldn't quite believe what was happening. Well, a new old team, a team that he was going back to, and sort of emotionally, it was a an intense experience. Do, do you get the the sense that he's he's excited about this year? Yeah, for sure. You know, Mark is a big champion. He likes to win. And when he starts winning, he just wants to keep winning. So the excitement is the same this year, the same last year. And, you know, uh, we haven't put any specific targets for this year. We just say, okay, we need to start performing as best as possible to every, to every single race. So every single race is going to do, the target is to win. And, you know, it doesn't matter if it's going to be just a one-day race in uh, Belgium or uh, the biggest stage race. You know, uh, he's he's just a winner, and that's what he wants to do. 
and uh, this is why we're here for just start winning races and then we'll see how far we can go this year of course he's a year older but uh, i can tell you that um, the data we have in our hands shows that he's uh, he's as strong as last year at least you mentioned there that he's a year older vasi uh, at this age 35 36 do you have to do anything as his coach to to take that into account is he doing sort of i don't know is it doing 10% more in the gym that he was this time last year or 10% more of a certain type of effort or uh, how, how do you how do you take that into account the age factor no you know so far i haven't seen uh, this as a limiting factor mm. because don't forget that he almost lost 3 years so uh, you know the approach we continue this year is based on the work that we did last year. So we just extend the work that we did last year. And uh, since we saw that it's uh, it's working with him, his body is responding, then uh, we just we just keep it like that. Uh, I deal with Mark as if, in, as if he's like 28, 30 years old. To me, he doesn't show any signs of fatigue or uh, uh, he doesn't get any slower, you know, with the age. And that's, that's a huge surprise, to be honest. I know that the, well, Mark hasn't sort of publicly, he hasn't wanted to talk really much about his race program beyond Tirreno. I mean, is it clear in your head what he's going to do in sort of May, June, July or? and, and uh, what? So far, yeah, so far our target, the first period will uh, go till Tirreno. After Tirreno, we'll sit down and then we'll define the next, uh, the next course. But uh, so far, we're interested in about Oman, UAE. And then uh, Tirreno. Then it's gonna do probably the Giro, but then that needs to be confirmed. And then we need to to clarify things after Tirreno. And um, Vasi, you've got a long relationship, a long association with Fabio Jakobsen as well. I mean, how pleased, how impressed were you with his um, sprints in Valencia, especially the first one he won by a huge margin? To be honest, I wasn't surprised at all because. Uh, we have been working with Fabio last year, you know. We were there with the camps, we did some tests, and the Fabio saw that he's up to his game again. He's uh, up to his best. So the numbers he was producing during the camp, was, they were really, really good. So uh, I was confident that if everything goes well, he can sprint, he can uh, beat. To me, Fabio now is one of the best, uh, the best sprinters in the world. And he saw that also in Valencia. You know, the only stage that he did win... He was boxed, that's why he didn't win. He couldn't sprint. But if he has a good lead-out train, then I don't think there are many sprinters that want that can beat him. Well, that was Vasilis Anastopoulos, chaps, and much easier to call him Vasi. And, um, well, I, I mentioned there that this time last year we certainly didn't expect Mark Cavendish to be winning stages at the Tour de France. Um, it, last spring, in fact, um, well, we... we discovered later that part of the, the sort of groundwork that Mark did for his Tour de France um, was in Greece. And Vasi told me a, uh, a nice little, a curious little anecdote today about one of the training sessions that he did at the, what was the Olympic Velodrome in Athens. And um, I think the minister, it was the Minister of Sports, the Greek Minister of Sports happened to be there that day and he met Mark and um, Mark said to him, well, I've enjoyed training so much on these roads in Greece that you really should organise a race here. It's a bit of a travesty that there isn't a major race here. And, um, well, this conversation led to lots of other conversations. And, 
well, in April this year, on 27th of April, in fact, the Tour of Hellas, the Tour of Greece will take place, the inaugural edition, certainly this iteration of the Tour of Greece. And um, Vasilis Anastopoulos, um, Mark's coach, is heavily involved in that. And Cavendish is, himself is one of the ambassadors. And um, there are going to be some World Tour teams there. Um, it's going to start in Crete and then go over to the mainland. It could be a bit of a tune-up for the Giro um, or we might see some Tour de France riders there. But... That's um, what we talked earlier in the pod about fantastic landscapes and how um, Saudi Arabia showed showed off that country um, to its sort of best effect. And tour of Hellas, tour of Greece, it's quite a mouthwatering prospect, chaps. I don't know if you agree. Well, absolutely. Lizzie Banks uh, of the Cycling Podcast and uh, Team EF, typical SVB, to give them their full name. She recently did a training camp in Greece and had a great time there. Said it was fantastic for training so um yeah it's not a place that you hear of riders going very often although um a rider who i've just learned is retiring at the end of this year ilner zakarin it uh, seems like only yesterday we were we were calling him the next uh, great prospect but he's retiring at the end of the year and um, he did or still maybe still does live in cyprus doesn't he daniel i think he does yeah all i can think of is that the world tour calendar needs an olive oil swing uh, just a succession of stage races in oh, the olive oil heartlands. I definitely put my name down for that. There goes the Tour of Britain. Um, thoughts, thoughts, on anyway. Cav, cha, thoughts on Cav, chaps? We heard um, Vassi there say that he's, well, he shouldn't really be any weaker than last year. His numbers look just as good, or, or certainly in that ballpark. What, what do you expect from him over the next few months? It's hard to know, isn't it? Um, he's such a rider for the, the big occasion, isn't he? And... You, you felt that at the Tour de France last year, it, it did feel a bit like the the last hurrah. Um, you know, Patrick Lefebvre even sort of hinted at that to you, um, Lionel, didn't he? That had he won on the Champs-Élysées, it would have been a great way for him to to bow out. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a difficult situation in a way for him because uh, he's at the one team that he wants to be at, the one team at which he can probably still when at the the highest level um, or certainly have the the best support around him to enable him to do so but that also makes it more difficult to get that ticket to the Tour de France which is I'm sure where he would really like to be I mean I'm sure he would love to go back to the Tour and um, you know have another go at continuing what he did last year and beating uh, or becoming the outright holder of the record um, for stage wins at the Tour Um, I'm sure he'd love to do that and he's He's being very diplomatic, isn't he? He doesn't have much choice. Um, the pecking order seems quite decided. I mean, Michael Merku told us this at the Ghent Six, that as far as he was concerned, it was Fabio Jakobsen um, who would be going to the Tour. Um, and it would take something to happen to Jakobsen uh, for that not to be the case, I think. And nobody would wish that. So um, Cavendish, I expect, will go to the Giro, but... I have this question in my mind about how how happy he is about that, really. I don't know. Plenty of opportunities to win stages at the Giro. And as we saw last year, you just never know what might happen. I mean, again, without... No, you don't. Certainly not wanting to wish ill on um, uh, Fabio Jakobsen for the sake of Mark Cavendish getting a ride in the Tour de France, of course. But all Cavendish can do is put the performances together, um, notch a few wins and just be there in case anything happens and he he might you know something might happen that means that he's the logical call up for a place 
in the quick step Tour de France team. You can't discount that possibility. The other hypothesis that no one's really talked about, and I don't think Patrick Lefebvre really wants to contemplate, but it would be an option, would be to take them both. I mean, we saw Alpecin Phoenix last year with, uh, well, two bona fide sprinters and then also Van der Poel as well, who's able to sprint. And that is an option. But I, I remember before Skelder Price last year, Lefebvre airing his misgivings about having two sprinters ra- racing together and Cavendish and Sam Bennett, Julie went to Skelder Price and it was a bit of a, well, they sort of fudged the finish. No one really knew. Well, certainly it was difficult for Cavendish to know what his role should be in that situation. And I suppose Lefebvre would be concerned that that might happen yeah. again. And I think, Can't I mean, I, you know, your Cavs not going to become lead out man. Um, they've got a very good lead out man. And I think the problem in that scenario is actually potentially Jakobsen himself, because he is, uh, it, you know, we saw this, this, this version of, of Jakobsen sort of emerge over the course of the Vuelta as his confidence returned. He became... Never mind alpha vinyl. He was quite alpha male. And remember, remember the day that Seneschal clipped Mm. off. He'd been dropped in the in the lead out. Um, The lead out was just a bit too fast. He was he was distance Jakobsen, and Seneschal went on to win the stage. And and there were some some harsh words exchanged at the finish. Jakobsen wasn't that impressed. He wasn't that pleased. And so I can just imagine how he would feel with two with another sprinter in the same team. Well, again, he's the coming man, isn't he? He's, n- he's never had that experience in the Tour de France and he will feel his results deserve it. I can't see them taking both of them to the Tour de France. They'd need a second team bus or some kind of cooling down bus for whoever, you know, was having, uh, you know, was on the, 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 the rough end of the team decision making each day. And I can't mm. see that happening. Just, I mean, before we go this week, I want to make you... you you um, mentioned it earlier, Lionel, but the the COVID cases in Valenciana, which knocked out you know a couple of teams, um, th- this is quite concerning. We also heard today that Pogacar had COVID last week. I mean, um, I wonder what's going to happen with this because th- this is it, it seems that um, you know COVID's not gone away, um, and the 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 rules that are in place are still a kind of almost a zero tolerance policy of it which is slowly not becoming the case in other aspects of life. And I just wonder whether sport and cycling will have to adapt their rules quite quickly because otherwise I think, and as we get into the major races, teams and major riders are going to be KO'd by COVID cases, either for themselves or within their teams. Um, There are more cases than ever currently. um, And, it's probably not sustainable to carry on forever with this uh, approach whereby uh, a COVID case on a team uh, could potentially take the whole team out. Just thought I'd throw that out there. I mean, I don't know what the answer is, but I think we could see some changes to the rules um, before we get too much further into the season, perhaps. Well, I think it will become a case of symptomless and uh, asymptomatic, won't it? I mean, if, if somebody doesn't know that they've got the virus but aren't, uh, feeling perfectly well in a situation where there's no testing uh, required by the race, presumably no one will know. I mean, the, the UCI's protocol is clear. Um, it, it's, it differs for one-day races and for stage races. Um, there'll be testing during the Grand Tours. So I would imagine that unless people are feeling unwell, um, it will be a case of um, continuing until 
a, a failed test on a I, I'm assuming if the previous years are anything to go by those tests will be on rest days so um, certainly yeah it's a, it's not going to suddenly evaporate this is it and it, it could wipe out um, some big name riders but let's hope it doesn't before we go just a quick corrections corner Ronan Lee emailed uh, with a comment about my piece about the world rankings last year he pointed out that in 1989 when Sean Kelly's runners UCI world ranking number one rider came to an end. I'd said it was Laurent Fignon who toppled him. It was actually Charlie Motte, his uh, French compatriot, who briefly um, topped the rankings in May 1989 before Laurent Fignon took over after winning the Giro d'Italia and finishing second in the Tour de France. And speaking of which, Richard, you set the question at the beginning, Mm. which you said we'd forget. I I Um, did forget, yeah. You did forget. The question was, has anyone um, posted a really impressive performance that hasn't resulted in a victory? And I was going to say Laurent Fignon in the 1989 Tour de France. I mean, he did almost everything but win the race, didn't he? He lost it by eight seconds. But that Nobody a, remembers a that race. as being a great performance by Laurent Fignon, though, do they? I think that... The days before, when he almost wrapped up the race, he almost put it out of Greg LeMond's reach with a couple of uh, really impressive rides. I thought, you know, I'm, but nah, there we are. Nah, that not, springs not to having mind. that. Not having that. Um, I, I think Bernardino, um, some of his best performances were in defeat in 86. Um, there's more information on that in a, a book called Slaying the Badger. Um, but he sort of almost became, well, he, he became a lot more popular in defeat than he ever was in victory, you know, uh, the way that he went down uh, endeared him to a lot of people and won him sort of admiration and um, and awe. Um, that's one that I can think of. I can't think of, I don't think I can think of any others, any other great performances where the, 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 the architect of the great performance has, has not won the race. Well, listeners, write in if you can think of any. Uh, Thank you very much to Ronan for setting me straight on that because uh, getting something wrong about the 1989 season was uh, pretty mortifying for me because that would probably be my cycling specialist subject on Mastermind, I would have thought. I mean, having said what I just said, there are great performances by riders who are not supposed to win. Michael Morkov at the numerous stages of of the tour de france as a as a lead out man mark renshaw going back a bit um uh, you know there are numerous team you know team performances anna van der bregen at liege baston liege last year to help demi vollering i mean what about lance armstrong tours de france 1999 to 2005 that's probably the that's probably a candidate um certainly yep yeah, let's throw that one in the mix. Um, yeah. <laughs> Any others, Daniel? <laughs> there were there, were, there were a lot. That era was really a, a special era for, you know. For great performances that didn't result in a win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Loads of them. Uh, take your pick. Um, just before we go, um, we've had a few emails as well from uh, friends of the podcast wondering about their gifts for this year because if you pay a little bit extra to be a friend of the podcast you do receive a gift last year it was a a casket and or a tea towel um we will be we will be sending gifts again this year doing something a little bit different this year the tea towel is still available um but we'll be offering a couple of other things as well um and we'll we'll be giving you details on that very very soon in the next couple of weeks i would think 
So do stay tuned. But we haven't forgotten about you. And thank you very much, uh, all of you who have signed up as a friend of the podcast. We've got a few episodes from the archive coming later this week, releasing four conversations with some of the biggest figures in World Tour team management that we've made over the years, just adding them uh, as a bonus, really, to the new Friends of the Podcast feed from the back catalogue, our lunches or coffees or get-togethers with Matt White, Patrick Lefebvre, Dave Browsford and Jonathan Waters. Um, if you're a, a historic friend of the podcast, you may have heard them before. Um, but if you're a new friend of the podcast, well, they may well be of interest to you. But we're adding them to the new feed on Friday. And hopefully finishing them off with a current uh, interview with a manager or recent manager from a World Tour team. So uh, working on that one at the moment. Uh, but that's all for this week. We'll be back next week and i think next week we'll be looking ahead to the uae tour and the first appearance of the season for Tadej pogacar and, and, and other big names as well tom de is down to ride there too so and um, we'll have lots to talk about next week um in the meantime thank you very much lionel and good luck with your magical mystery tour thank you richard thank you daniel thank you chaps you've been listening to the cycling podcast with lionel burney daniel freeb and richard moore to become a friend of the podcast or to sign up for our weekly newsletter, go to thecyclingpodcast.com. Our theme music is by Glass Pear, and this episode was produced by Hugh Owen. <laughs>